I'm Victor Black. Well, this is CNN Tonight. Down to the wire, right before the deadline at 8 p.m. Eastern, the Trump team filed its response to the Justice Department's blockbuster brief revealing new details about its ongoing criminal investigation. Now, this filing was 19 pages. It did acknowledge that classified material was found at Mar-a-Lago earlier this month, but essentially it says that it wasn't a big deal. Trump's filing says, quote, the purported justification for the initiation of this criminal probe was the alleged discovery of sensitive information contained within the 15 boxes of presidential records. But this discovery, in quotes, was to be fully anticipated given the very nature of presidential records. Simply put, the notion that presidential records would contain sensitive information should have never been cause for alarm. Now, this is all part of a bid by the Trump team to have the special master appointed to review items taken from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. A judge holds a hearing on that tomorrow. And this comes on the heels of the very serious claims laid out in the Justice Department's 36-page filing, including... Another quote here, evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room at the Trump home and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. And for the first time, we got this visual of some of the classified documents seized from Donald Trump's home that also serves as a hotel. Now, some of those documents are said to be so highly sensitive that even the FBI counterintelligence personnel and DOJ attorneys conducting the review required additional clearances before they were permitted to review. And these were found after Trump's lawyers told the DOJ he didn't have any more. Two sources tell CNN that lawyer was Christina Bob, who said this after the search warrant was executed. We've been cooperative this entire time. There was a, a, a subpoena issued that obviously all didn't comply with because otherwise there wouldn't have been a raid if they had everything that I they, wouldn't say they asked I for. wouldn't say obviously we didn't comply with it. We are under the impression that we, we did comply with it. I'm not aware of them coming back to us saying you didn't turn everything over. So, you, so you think you turned we, over everything that was in the subpoena? That was, yeah, that was our understanding. The DOJ says that's just not true. Quote, that the FBI, in a matter of hours, recovered twice as many documents with classification markings as the, quote, diligent search that the former president's counsel and other representatives had weeks to perform, calls into serious question the representations made in that June 3rd certification and cast doubt on the extent of cooperation in this matter. The government lists the number of additional classified documents recovered on August 8th as more than 100, putting the total recovered at 322, at least. Joining me now, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor, CNN political commentator Errol Lewis, and former Trump administration national security official Olivia Troy, a former counter-terror advisor to VP Mike Pence. Welcome to you all. Ellie, let me start with you. Is this the filing that you expected from the Trump team? No, it's very, very different than the first filing that opened up this whole issue. If we go back last week when they filed this motion seeking the special master, the bottom line request, the relief they're asking for, we want a special master, an outside independent third party to review this evidence. It's fairly mundane. It's fairly ministerial. But they dressed it up with all sorts of crazy talk, with wild accusations of political bias and other sort of over-the-top accusations. And I think that sort of distorted what they were actually asking for. Now, Trump's legal team seems to have pulled back a little bit. And this filing is actually very narrowly focused. There are some overstatements and oversteps, which I'm sure we'll get to. But for the most part, they're saying, we want a special master. Why not? Why does DOJ get to make every decision on its own, unchecked by any outsider? And DOJ, what are you afraid of? What are you hiding? Why do you not want 
some outside third party to come in and have some say. So they've changed the tone, pulled back some of the bluster. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what is not included in this document. They do not address the claims that were made in the DOJ filing, the additional 76 documents, the uh, evidence that the, the uh, DOJ says they had that the evidence, uh, documents were concealed and removed and, and obstruction. When you read that, that there were even three documents in the 45 office, what, what do you think? Well, I'm just thinking, why were these documents there to begin with? Again, so the, I, I feel like the document admits that the documents were there now, right? And that's what I'm thinking. And so they didn't give them back the first time. And I feel like it's just one lie after another. And honestly, while I think that they pulled back the bluster on this, I think it's just another disinformation campaign is how it read to me. It just continues to go down the path of that. And Errol, we wouldn't know any of these details that came out in the DOJ filing if not for this request for a special master. We're getting, as I'm calling it, this uh, rolling reveal uh, of this investigation. But it's because of the Trump Filings. That's exactly right. They're in a very difficult position. Even within this filing, it's really remarkable. They spend really the first third of the document uh, making an argument that, you know, he has a, a possessory interest, that th- these are his records. Why are you taking these records? But ultimately, that's going to be a problem for him because they're also sort of arguing, well, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, we were going to give it back. If they had just asked us in the right way, we would have gladly given it back, which suggests that, well, maybe it's not his. Mm. Um, so they're, they're in a, a, a very difficult position. They are trying to play out clearly um, the, the orders of a client who has not quite made up his mind what it is he wants to really rest on. Uh, you know, first, he's the one who announced it publicly that there was this raid going on, that this search was taking place. Um, then he comes forward and says that, well, I declassified all of it. That doesn't appear in any of the legal filings. They don't say it in this one or any of the other ones because he didn't, because he couldn't. Um, And so it's unclear what he's saying to his lawyers or whether or not, indeed, he told them fully what had been disclosed. You've got to feel bad for some of his attorneys who are making, you know, good faith arguments to the court. Hey, we've given you everything as far as we know. Uh, that he was holding on to, and it turns out there are hundreds of more documents. And to Errol's point, there are a couple of notable oversteps here. One of them is Trump's team says this was all a standard give and take. There's nothing standard about this. DOJ, the archives bent over backwards to accommodate him. The other thing, the quote that you opened the segment with, Victor, where Trump's team says... Why it should have come as no surprise that presidential documents contain classified materials. That's not the surprise. The surprise is that those materials were in a hotel in Florida. So they did. I think there are some missteps in here for sure. Errol mentioned, of course, uh, these uh, attorneys, one of them, Christina Bob, who you know, who signed this attestation saying you got everything. There's no more classified information at Mar-a-Lago. She wouldn't have signed that if she knew that there were documents there, you don't think. Well, I don't know. I really question Christina Bob's motives. I mean, I know Christina Bob. I, I, you know, she's very, very loyal to Donald Trump. Um, I knew her when she was an executive secretary at DHS, and she has a habit of lying her way through things. So, I mean, uh, look, I, I think she's in some serious trouble. And I think that when you're dealing with classified information, anyone who enabled this moment that led to these classified documents to be down there at a resort instead of where they should be, which is properly stored, uh, I think the lives of intelligence officers are on your head on your conscience, and you're impacting the entire intelligence community now with the cleanup that they're going to have to do and the damage that you've done. And so I think you're equally as responsible. You're a part of this. Mm-hmm. Ellie, what's next? Um, well, tomorrow we're going to have this hearing where <laughs> heaven knows what the arguments will be. But if this is any indication, it looks like the, the sort of calmer heads among Trump's legal team have started to take precedence over 
the Christina Bobs, perhaps. Um, if I'm Trump's lawyer here, I'm trying to keep this as narrowly focused as possible. I, this is not the time to litigate the entirety of the search. This is not the time legally or otherwise to argue whether the search was constitutional or not. All you're asking for here, if you're Trump's lawyers, is a special master, a neutral, independent third party to come in and take a look. We can do this quickly, I would argue. I would agree with DOJ. They said we can do it quickly. We agree. If I'm them, I try to keep very narrowly focused. Judge could rule tomorrow. We could know by your show tomorrow, Victor, 2 Mm o'clock, what the ruling is. Or the judge could take it under advisement, maybe rule down the line a little bit. I mean, they're also asking for the unredacted affidavit. They're asking for all of the information that the government has. I mean, they they clearly want to sort of figure out what all is going on here and what the extent of their legal exposure is. I don't know if the Department of Justice is going to cooperate with that. They won't and should not get the unredacted affidavit. Nobody gets an affidavit until they're charged. The half affidavit that was not redacted that's already half an affidavit more than almost anybody else ever gets at this point. Errol, the first couple of days after the search, um, Trump was raising a million dollars a day. There were people around him saying, listen, this is the moment to get into the 2024 race. That seems to have tapered off uh, uh, quite a bit now. Is this changing? Is there evidence this is changing some around him, the, the party's view of his standings? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, his political standing um, may be problematic at this point. People may decide to, you know, hold on to their checkbook for a week or two and see how all of this is going to play out. On, on the other hand, in this filing, they point out, on, I think on the first page, that this is somebody who's going to be a candidate for president. I mean, it is critical to his legal defense that he establish himself as something other than a run-of-the-mill defendant who was found with hundreds of top-secret documents in their possession. Um, you know, because if, if, if he's just one more American who doesn't have executive privilege, who doesn't have uh, the, the shielding of, of, of his status as a presidential candidate even, he's in, he's in really deep soup. He uh, needs that, that protection now. Yeah, and he needs to be held accountable. I mean, we cannot allow to give this a pass because really you're undermining our entire rule of law. If this is a case and we're saying that it's okay to take classified information, it's okay to potentially store it wherever the heck you want when there's we know that plenty of foreign intelligence people are on that property. I mean, it's prime for that. Right. And so I think what are we saying as a United States to the rest of the world and the people that have shared intelligence with us? If we don't hold the people accountable that we're responsible for this. All right. We'll get the first answer on this special master uh, tomorrow afternoon. Possibly. Maybe. All right. Ellie Honig, Olivia Troy, thank you both. Uh, Errol, stick with us. Uh, Much more on the evidence laid out so far by the Justice Department. What does a former Trump White House uh, chief of staff make of all these new developments? Mick Mulvaney is coming up. We just got Team Trump's response to the Justice Department's explosive filing moments ago. But what the DOJ laid out in its brief We just can't move on from new details about where the documents were located, possible concealment, allegations of potential obstruction and this remarkable photo. What does a longtime Trump defender think? Earlier this evening, I spoke to Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Sir, thank you for being with us tonight. Victor, thanks for having me. Let's start here with your reaction to the details in this new DOJ filing. Do you think that what's been revealed in these 36 pages is damning for Trump team. It's certainly damaging. There's no question about that. There's still 
a lot we don't know. We still don't know what's in those documents. We can talk in a second about why that's important. But certainly it doesn't look good that these documents were there. Keep in mind the president, or at least the president's lawyer, had written a letter to the FBI saying that there were no uh, confidential documents. We're hearing information late today that his lawyer in another case, in the New York case, said that she had been through all of his drawers, uh, all of his, his, his document drawers and so forth uh, for that New York case, and she did not mention seeing anything. So uh, that, that doesn't look good for the president. Um, I'm not too worried about the documents lying on the floor. I think the president um, commented today that that wasn't the way he kept his documents. That was my experience. He didn't throw stuff around a room like that. So uh, some of the some of the more visual stuff is probably not as damning as it looks uh, in the media. But certainly the fact that there are documents there, that they're apparently in his desk drawer, um, undermines the argument that there was nothing there in the first place and certainly undermines the arguments um, that they may have been there accidentally. It's sort of hard to say how something ends up accidentally in your desk. So all in all, I think probably a bad day for the president. Yeah, let's talk about those uh, three classified documents that were uh, in the 45 office desks, uh, according to this DOJ filing. Uh, he would have to know that those were in there, right? That, that no one else would have put them there. Yeah, I've been on TV a bunch of times in the last couple of weeks saying, look, I, I know a little bit about how the White House works. I know a little bit how it wasn't working very well at the end of the first term. And it's completely possible they threw a bunch of documents in boxes and just left. And that inadvertence would be a defense here. But if the documents are in the in the former president's desk, it's sort of hard to say they got there by accident. So it looks like one of the potential defenses is sort of undermined, uh, keeping in mind that another potential defense is that the documents may have been declassified really doesn't matter for all of the charges that the, the DOJ says they might uh, look at pursuing. The bottom line, Victor, I think is this. And I had told the president this when I worked with him uh, in the Oval Office. It's very rarely the original act that gets people in trouble. It's the it attempts to, to obstruct or cover up after the fact. Um, and my guess is, and it's an educated guess at this point, based upon only what we're seeing in the media, that the president may be in more trouble for how he treated the documents after the FBI started its investigation than he is because of how they got there in the first place. Yeah. Speaking of, of the, the access uh, potentially to the desk, to the, the office, there was this uh, reporting during the administration that there was a, um, this freewielding access to the Oval Office that people could just walk in. Was that the case at, at Mar-a-Lago as well? It, it was and it wasn't. Keep in mind, the difference is this. It's not the freewheeling attitude. It's the layers of protection that were in place institutionally. Mm. In the Oval Office, there were people whose specific job it was, it's the, called the Office of the Staff Secretary, um, was to make sure that documents were accounted for, that documents were cleaned up after one meeting before another, that would, documents would be tracked down. Um, there was an institutional sort of layer of protection for the president. I have no idea if that same level of protection applied at Mar-a-Lago. My gut instinct is that it wasn't. And there wasn't somebody who was paid to follow around the president, making sure all the documents were where they were supposed to be. So again, an educated guess. My guess is the level of protection for documents at Mar-a-Lago didn't approach what they did in the uh, in the Oval Office. The DOJ uh, points out that they've developed evidence uh, that uh, government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. I wonder if there's any question in your mind that uh, the former president or his team actively tried to hide these documents, the 76 documents, classified documents that were later found in the storage unit uh, from investigators. 
I mean, sure, there sh- if your question is, do I, is there any question in my mind? There, there still should be. There absolutely should be. There, there should be a presumption of innocence. And keep in mind, um, and I know not everybody grasps this, there's a great deal of distrust between the president specifically and a lot of folks on the right generally over the way the FBI has behaved over the course of the last five years. Keep in mind, this is the same FBI um, that presented false information to another judge um, to spy on the on the Trump campaign in 2016. That maybe that the FBI interfered in the 2020 election to prevent information about the Biden laptop coming out. So there's a, a great deal of bad history here. So to jump to a conclusion that just because the FBI says it means it has to be true and that this case is lock, stock and barrel finished. I saw some even Republican commentators say that the, the FBI had the president dead to rights. I think that's jumping way too quickly to a conclusion and we need to let this play out as long as it needs to. What's the universe of people who would have access to the 45 office, to the storage unit to know that these documents are back? Yeah, not not too many, at least in my experience when I was there. I, I was only in the president's office very, very rarely, and only on very special occasions, like when the Mueller report came out. That's his private area. His practice may have changed, but I've said from the very beginning when there was some discussion about um, who the person might be that was in the informant to the FBI, that the universe of people who might know, for example, about his safe would be very, very small, six or eight people. I think the people who might have access to his desk were even smaller than that. Yes, Mar-a-Lago is a public place. It's a club. There's hotel rooms there and so forth. And when it's in use, the public areas are widely available. But the president um, can be a very private man. And I don't think there's a lot of people who would have gone into his office and certainly very, very few people who would uh, know the contents of his desk. You mentioned this attestation that was signed by uh, one of his attorneys, uh, Christina Bob, who said that there was no more uh, classified information at Mar-a-Lago Um, Do you think this is a case of just the president not being honest with his his attorneys, not telling them everything that he knows, uh, less of a nefarious element for uh, the attorney herself? Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of hard to to say about that. I I can't imagine that a lawyer uh, would sign a a document if they were concerned that their client was lying to them. They would want to satisfy themselves uh, that that's accurate. Um, that being said, I have never been impressed with the with the with the president's legal team. You know, I'm not sure who his lawyers are today. I'm not even sure if his lawyers uh, understand uh, the issues they're getting into. I think the the motion for the special master was was filed what what folks generally see as two weeks too late and probably too late to have an impact on how the documents were were, were handled. So it's sort of been a clown show uh, of legal representation. But I don't think it, I don't think it's possible to say that well the president lied to his attorney or his attorney didn't do a good job. The fact of the matter is this, Victor is there's a piece of paper signed by a lawyer saying something that's false, and the DOJ is not going to take that very well. The first few days after the uh, search, he was raising a million dollars a day. That tapered off, and now you're hearing some Republicans say, well, maybe we should pause. Yeah, and raising a million dollars a day and apparently not sharing it very aggressively with with other Republicans, uh, it does put, this whole issue puts uh, rank and file Republicans in a real pickle. They'd much rather be talking about the inflation. They'd be talking about the weaknesses of the Biden administration. And when the president comes out in the middle of the night and tweets or does his, his, his uh, new whatever tooth social is saying that uh, based on the Zuckerberg comments, we should redo the 2020 election. Um, all these candidates are now going to have to answer questions about Donald Trump. And there's really no good answer. If they get asked the question, do you think we should redo the 2020 election? And they say yes. 
They lose swing voters. If they say no, they lose MAGA Trump voters. Uh, and again, they lose the opportunity to talk about what they want to talk about. So um, whether it's intentional on the part of the president or inadvertent, he is becoming more and more an issue in these midterm elections. And you're starting to feel a little bit of momentum um, move away from the Republicans, though I, I still don't think it's nearly as much of a, of a difficulty for the Republicans in the midterm that some of the media make it out to be. Mick Mulvaney, thank you. Thanks, Victor. An American state capital is in crisis for a third day now with no cleaning water. Uh, imagine living like this. We have dishes piled up because we cannot wash them. Um, there's no currently no water coming out of the faucet. We're not going to be able to flush the toilet. Sad reality for the people of Jackson, Mississippi right now. And that man you just heard, he's about to join us along with the leader in his city with more on the conditions there. Why is this fix taking so long? That's next. Water is now the most precious commodity in Jackson, Mississippi, an American city home to more than 150,000 people. We're talking about a state capital here. We're approaching the fourth straight day of people living like this with tubs filled with brown water. They use this to flush. Very little water pressure when there is anything flowing. They can't drink what's coming out of the faucet. That's inside. You head outside. Everybody's waiting in line for hours for the most basic human need, a case of water. And I would like for it to be fixed. Please fix our water. It's been rough. Didn't nobody pay attention to this until it happened. I mean, Jackson has to do something about these. What about the kids? What about the community? What about the people? I mean, somebody could do something. The president declared a federal disaster to get emergency assistance moving, and a new rented pump is up and running at the crippled water plant. The mayor tells CNN he's confident water will be restored this week. But the problem goes beyond just refilling an already dangerous system. I'm joined now by the president of the Jackson City Council, Ashby Foote, as well as Kahinde, uh, a father of three living through this reality. Uh, welcome to you both. Um, Kahinde, let me start with you, uh, Kahinde Gaynor. Um, you've got a, a family of five living through this. I, I can't imagine doing it myself. H- how are you making it uh, through this crisis? Uh, we're making it day by day. It's, it's extremely difficult. Um, we were dealing with this just over uh, less than a year ago during a winter freeze. So that winter freeze kind of helped me to prepare for what's happening right now. And it's, it's devastating as a father because, you know, we're the providers uh, of the fam- for the family. And right now we are just crippled because we have no control of what's happening on the outside of the home. So I can only control what's happening on the inside just trying to be as prepared as possible. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing right now. That's where we're at. And Kehinde, I understand that even before this most recent uh, emergency, you started getting bottled water for your family just because the boil water advisories come so frequent, last so long, that now you're paying the, the water bill and you've got the, the water that you have to buy to, to drink. Right, right. My, my father-in-law actually made a great suggestion during the winter freeze, he said, listen, you need to subscribe to Kentwood. Um, and that's not to put any particular water brand out there. But after I did that, 
we started receiving five-gallon water jugs, which helped um, to have to keep um, going out to the grocery store to buy bottled water. And then when you would go out there, the shelves would be empty. You'd have to wait in the line just to get maybe one to two packs of water, which is, is not very helpful, but it, it does some help. So, yeah, I, I, we expense a lot just to have the basic necessities, to have bottled water and to have filtered water in our home. Councilman, um, when is this going to be fixed? When's the water going to be safe in Jackson? Well, that's an unnoble answer to me and a noble answer even to the people that have taken over the plant now. The state came in and, and added uh, re resources, and hopefully we'll get some resources from the federal government. There's a lot of different issues, but they're working hard at it. So this is an all-hands-on-deck type of uh, situation that I'm glad we've gotten res additional resources to supplement the resources that the city had there. It's a serious issue for um, uh, health issues and for a number of reasons. It's also a serious issue because of our fire system that relies on water to the hydrants. Yeah. So both those things and, and additional quality of life issues uh, make this something that we need all the resources possible to work at this. Now, now when the mayor says that he is confident that uh, water will be restored this week, you say that it's unknowable when, when water service will be restored and safe. How can those two things be true? Who's wrong here? Well, I'm not saying anybody's wrong. I think he certainly wants that to be the case. Uh, I talked to the people out at the plant today. They had to stop services today because they had a 10 million gallon tank that had to be dispersed and, and pumped out and then refilled so they could bring that water, the new water, up to quality standards to sh send out into the system. And so uh, we're doing everything we can at this point in time, that being the state and the city and hopefully the federal system as well, to address these issues. We're also bringing in the National Guard so we'll have uh, non-potable water available hopefully uh, by the weekend. Uh, but as to when we'll be able to have it back the way it should be, uh, I'm hoping we'll have that in a week or two weeks. But I just I'm not in a position to estimate when that'll be. Now, when you say the way it should be, it should be better than it was before the water pressure bottomed out. It should be better than a, a boil water advisory four times in the last 18 months, some of them lasting for a month long. So when, when you say it should be, are you telling me that it's going to be a quality that people can drink and brush their teeth with without boiling first in a week or so? Or is going to go back to, to the well, water that you yeah, had I would before? Hope, you know, no, I don't want to go just back to where we were before this latest episode. We want to go back to where it should be a high-quality, dependable water, you know, water system that delivers uh, water that the people can trust, the businesses can trust, and they can plan their lives around it rather than being the uncertainty that, that citizens face today, like Lakende, that that makes life much more complicated than it necessarily should be. So how do you get there? Because it ain't free, it ain't cheap, and Jackson doesn't have the money. Well, we, you're right. Those are all three true. The, we get there by working hard at it and using the resources necessary to get it up and running. This should be, a, you know, every citizen should have access to clean, drinkable water in their homes. And we've got to get work Councilman, to get to that let, goal. Let me, let me interrupt uh, you, we, please. We can't stop I, until I, we get I hear, there. I hear the goal. Yes, sir. Everyone shares the goal of okay. getting um, water that people right. can consume okay. and brush their teeth with. 
What I'm asking you is how do what? you get there? What is going to happen between now and then so that Kahinde doesn't have to pay for a water subscription, he can flush his toilet, his children can bathe themselves? What, what is going to, to practically happen between now and then? We're going to add staff. We've been, uh, for the last, you know, many years, we've been uh, understaffed, and we've also had um, less than necessary preventive maintenance applied to the plant in a way that, that can, can keep it running in a, in a uh, top-form manner. And so we've got to do better at that. In the meantime, we've got to bring in the resources, the staff, additional staff that have the credentials and the uh, uh, qualifications to run the plant around the clock, three shifts a day, seven days a week. Councilman, I know that, that none of these answers are uh, is easy, um, and again, Jackson doesn't have the money. I hear what you're saying. It does not get an answer to the question of what will actually happen. I'm hearing goals. I'm hearing hopes. Um, but but the, these, I understand, are difficult questions that both the city council and the governor have okay. to answer. Kahende, let me come back to you. You heard what the council president uh, said there. And what's your reaction? There's a hope that you'll get water, but there's really no guarantee or timeline on when that'll happen. Right. And, you know, I, I don't fault uh, the councilman. I don't fault the mayor or the governor. Um, this is a system that has been taxed for years, decades. Um, so it's not one person's fault. It's not one entity's fault. It's just something that has been um, a can that's been kicked down the road for several years. Um, and what I'm hoping is that the state government and the city government can really work together to provide whatever resources is necessary to help the citizens of Jackson. Um, I'm not really interested in the politics side of it. I'm not interested in any of those things. I really want to see all of us come together to work this thing out so we can have a good quality of life. That's all I'm asking for is just a quality of life. One last question for you, Councilman. Um, Are the mayor and the governor speaking to one another? Uh, I'm not sure if they are or not. You know, I'm speaking to both of them, so uh, I can certainly be an intermediary there. But the important thing is that, as uh, yeah. my, my partner, Kahinde, said, is that that we get to work on the issues. And I can go into more specifics. We've got 12 water towers that need to be filled with water. I understand right now, that. The, the I understand that. The plant doesn't have the capacity. So and if you wanted more specifics, I can give them to you, but... I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds. Listen, but I appreciate. A lot of things that I, I appreciate plan to accomplish that. I appreciate okay. that, um, and no one is to get deep into politics. But the mayor and the governor, in a crisis, need to be communicating, and it's it's unfortunate that it's no one's sure if they are really speaking to one another. Um, Councilman Foote, Kahinde Gaynor, I thank you both, and we all hope that Jackson gets the water service that it deserves. Thanks for having well, me. Thank you for covering this story. Certainly. All right, to the big politics news, former vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin will not be making a political comeback as a U.S. congresswoman, at least not yet. That's next. New tonight, Sarah Palin has failed at her most recent attempt at a political comeback. She lost the special election for a vacant House seat in Alaska. 
That seat is now flipping to a Democrat for the first time since 1972. Here to discuss, former U.S. Representative Abby Finkenauer and CNN political commentators Errol Lewis and S.E. Cup. S.E., let me start with you. Sarah Palin. Yeah, huge, huge <laughs> name recognition. Yeah, yeah, we have heard of her. And that, yep. but that was the that was the play. She had the name recognition, didn't win. Well, I think Errol and I were just talking about this. A fellow Daily News alum. I've had a Daily News column for twelve years, in part because the first column I wrote was about Sarah Palin. Is what people thought her name was. We were trying to figure out the pronunciation. No one knew who we she was. Right. right. And I liked her story. I thought it was really impressive. And I thought, as much as she might have hurt John McCain. She also helped John McCain. But we all know what happened after. She resigned the governor. She went on to be Fox famous, and she wanted to sort of follow fame. And I, I get that she looked at this landscape with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts and thought, great, finally a chance to be famous and not have to govern all that much. But I think Alaskans were really turned off and felt abandoned by her when she left the state and kind of you know, in search of um, more famous pastures. So I think it, that was the result. Is this about Sarah Palin specifically? There's no kind of um, uh, lesson that Republicans can glean from this law. Well, I mean, if they wanted to take a lesson from it, it might well be that um, the local needs, in this case, Alaska gets only one representative. They've got to get it right. And right. Um, they've got a salmon shortage. They've got real problems there. They've got climate change issues just like everywhere else. Um, and uh, it seems like voters don't necessarily want to throw it away on somebody who's going to get up and sort of uh, do the celebrity thing. You know, leadership and celebrity are two different things. And Sarah Palin uh, dropped one and went in the other direction. I don't know if they're looking for a celebrity there. That's a lesson that Republicans ought to take to heart. I mean, let's also not sell the Democratic uh, now winner short here. I mean, Mary Paltola, first Native Alaskan ever to be elected. I think that says something. Um, Also a Democrat hasn't won in, what, 50 years in that seat? I mean, that says something. And I think it's going to be, again, just another indicator that Democrats have a heck of a lot more hope going into 2022 than we did a few months ago. Mm. Let's turn now to uh, Dr. Oz and some, if not conflicting, inconsistent comments on um, abortion. So we're going to play first what he said in May of this year. This was during the primary And then we're going to play something from an interview he did in 2019 where he talks about uh, heartbeat bills uh, that were being passed. Let's watch. I do believe life starts at conception. And I've said that multiple times. Life starts at conception. Why do you care what age the heart starts beating at? It's it's not risk to murder if you were to to terminate a child, whether the heart's beating or not. Now, what are your thoughts on Alabama and these anti-abortion laws that they're passing in Alabama? Well, that they've passed. Is that healthy? I'm, I'm really worried about it. And the other thing is this whole thing about heart beating. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are electrical changes at six weeks, but the heart's not beating. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you were, if you were to say, starting from when we can hear the heart, like mm-hmm. when the heart's really doing something, that would be different. Mm-hmm. That's not six weeks, though. Well, which is it? I mean, how could you believe both of those in the span of three years? Well, you can if you're a politician and you're running, right? I mean, the, it's a little unsurprising, especially Dr. Oz. He's got this sort of label as flip-flopping and not really being from Pennsylvania and running one way in a primary and another now in a general. And not all that surprising. We've seen a number of candidates, especially on the abortion issue, try to moderate in a general election. Again, that happens. President Obama, then Barack Obama, famously 
shifted after defeating Hillary Clinton in a primary, went more to the center on economic issues and really angered a lot of folks in sort of the left wings of, of his party. The problem is this is a super important issue this election cycle people are really paying attention on both sides to what you're saying. Yeah, we're seeing this, um, just like Essie said, all across the country here. Um, In Iowa, for example, I would say Iowa 3 is literally the most important frontline race in the country that Democrats are trying trying to protect, that Republicans are trying to win. And you've got the Republican candidate who sat there, or stood there, I suppose, during the primary with his hand up in the air saying that he doesn't support any exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, anything. And yet, like a week ago, writes an op-ed for the Des Moines Register completely changing his story. But his hand up in the air moment, that is an ad that Congresswoman Cindy Axney is running against him in Iowa 3. And it matters. I think, again, you're going to see this continue to play out across the country as we actually hold these Republicans accountable for where they actually stand. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of Republicans try to moderate those uh, those views, or at least the message uh, of those views. Uh, Abby Finkenauer, Essie Cup, Errol Lewis, thank you very much. A tennis match for the history books with legend Serena Williams advancing in what could be your last professional tournament right back uh, with the latest on the greatest of all time. All right, Serena Williams has just defeated the second-ranked tennis player in the world in the second round of the U.S. Open. Here with us now, former professional tennis player and ESPN tennis commentator Patrick McEnroe. I-, I see you were there uh, at Flushing Meadows. <laughs> I saw some of the clips, Patrick, and just the cheers. They were over-modulating the microphones. What did it feel like in there? I'm telling you, Victor, I've been lucky enough to be in this stadium behind me for some of the all-time matches in U.S. Open history. Sampras, Agassi, Serena against big sister Venus, Federer, Djokovic. I have never, ever heard what we're hearing, what we heard tonight, we're still hearing as, as Serena is doing, finishing up with her on-court interviews. We saw some vintage Serena Williams in this match playing against a legit competitor. And Annette Contevate, as you said, the number two ranked player in the world. Serena wins the opening set, a little energy drop in the second set, loses that one. But boy, oh boy, did she bring some unbelievable tennis in that final set. 11 aces victor in the match. And get this, 38 winners for Serena Williams in this one. And the Serena swan song lives for at least one more night. It's been unbelievable here. It's fantastic. I mean, I am glad to be here. If not here, I would be there with you watching it. Uh, But for her now to make it to the third round of a tournament, she's not done that since 2020. And no doubt the energy and the love and the cheer for every point Uh, at these tournaments at each round, that's carrying her through. Well, there's no doubt, Victor, that this, we were all coming into this thinking, okay, this is going to be a celebration of the greatest career in tennis for Serena Williams, 23 major titles, 14 in doubles with her sister, Venus, uh, six U.S. Open titles. But now, now we're all starting to think, and I think Serena is starting to think, now, wait a second, I just beat the number two player in the world And the way Serena's moving, Victor, you know, her movement has been so off coming since coming back at Wimbledon. Of course, she didn't play for a year. That was to be expected. But how quickly she is seemingly finding 
that A game again. And I think the dreams that we all had about Serena making a big run and going deep in this tournament are starting to become a potential reality right now. Yeah, she didn't make it beyond the first round uh, at Wimbledon there, but to come back um, at, at Flushing Meadows, I had the great fortune of being there for her, her last uh, win in 2014, I think it was, uh, where she won the singles. Uh, she's playing again on uh, tomorrow, the doubles, right? And then Friday, she's right. back on the court for a singles uh, uh, match. I- I'm just looking at these pictures, and I can imagine the energy there, celebrities <laughs> packing the place, standing for every, every point. And you know what's so excited about watching this version of Serena Victor is because obviously in her prime, she was so dominant. She was so far above the rest of the field. But now you're seeing another, another side to Serena Williams. That's why I, I, I remember the word she said, I'm evolving away from tennis, not retiring, evolving. And you're kind of seeing her evolve out here on the tennis court because she's more vulnerable as a player. She's not as dominant as she once was. Nobody could be at age 40. But she's battling as hard as ever. She's trying her you-know-what off out there. And to see her be able to raise the level and the fans get behind her. And imagine all the pressure she's under. Because everybody's so fired up and pumped up about this. And what is she doing? She's delivering yet again. This is going to be quite something as we get ready for. And you can bank on this, Victor. Friday night. So if you can get out here Friday night, I'll be happy to sit with you in the stands. I would take you up on that. We just had a picture of that uh, handshake <laughs> at the net. Uh, Patrick McEnroe, thank you so much. I am so happy for Serena. All right, that's it for me. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.